Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This year marks the 50th birthday of your favorite Sunday World newspaper. To celebrate, we're looking back over some of the front page stories and the scandals with the big name journalists who made it the People's Paper. So join us to reel in the years over the coming weeks on Crime World and a special 50th birthday party event which is going to be held on September 27th at the Sugar Club in Dublin. We have 50 tickets to give away for this live Crime World event to mark the big occasion. For information on how to enter, go to our Crime World social media channels on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Sunday World is 50, a Crime World special. Well, we always slag you as being our only, our one and only Guardian reader, although I do actually read The Guardian, but I, nobody credits me with it. But anyway. French-speaking um, French Guardian reader. Don't yeah, of course. <laughs> You're sort of like uh, the diamond in the rough amongst the Sunday World crew, I suppose. But... Um, Kind of when you were starting out and your aspirations maybe of being a journalist, did you ever think you were going to be finding yourself on the inside of brothels and face to face with some of the the vice industry's most dangerous pimps? No, it's the short answer yeah. to that. <laughs> but I think I think it was a, a bit of a rite of passage for every newbie um, coming into the Sunday World to go off and quickly find a brothel for them to write about. I, I, I suppose... Uh, initially from like it was before my time <laughs> that the Sunday World were covering brothels and you know initially some of it was oh my god here's a brothel and that was the story yeah. you, you know as you know it was like gay burn had just invented sex on on the late late show at that stage so it was it was kind of the early days of even society getting to the, you know getting to grips with this you know kind of hidden ireland this underworld ireland um, and it did evolve even even before i arrived in like you know there, there was when we got the chance uh, uh, a more of a concentration on some of the gangsters. Like I think it was Tom Condy McDonald was one of them. Mm. And he was the, the helicopter flying pimp from the West of Ireland who made quite a lot of money. Um, and then of course it would have been two fellas working for him who went on to become major players and still apparently are major players in the vice trade in Ireland. That's interesting now you should say that because like I do recall some of the other tabloid media that were here, mostly sort of Irish editions of the English newspapers, their headlines in the early days, and we're talking last century now, 
We're talking yeah. the 90s and probably, well, certainly it would have been the 90s by the time I was aware of it. But their headlines were kind of like, you know, judge caught in brothel or, uh, you know, cop seen going into brothel. It was like there was no actual probably evidence to this. It was just literally the headline grabbing the idea that somebody in high society could be in a brothel. But they... It's interesting that you should say that the Sunday world were sort of already kind of before their time going in behind the operations and trying to find who was benefiting. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it was, I suppose that was partly because there would have been an emphasis on crime stories. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I suppose that's part of our job or certainly part of the unspoken ethos to some extent is to, is to kind of get, you know, fresh original stories. And to some extent, like, you know, at certainly at the height of the Celtic Tiger, it was so what? It was nearly, you know, find a village in Ireland that didn't have a brothel at, at this stage. I mean, you know, when, when there was so much money uh, floating around, I mean, there was twice as many, you know, people on the various websites that were offering sex for sale services. And, you know, there was some really out of the way places, little border villages and, you know, you know, places in the middle of nowhere and, mm-hmm. you know, the far end of Cavan. I mean, they're not there now. I mean, they're, they're mostly concentrated in the bigger towns, but the odd time you, you get them turning up in, in, in strange spots. And that spots. became the story nearly that, that this has been pushed out across all the boundaries and into every sort of rural village and town. Yeah, it was. And I, I think the people behind the sex trade in Ireland were getting to the point where it was almost becoming mainstream that it was, and now all of a sudden it wasn't good enough just to have you know, a stripper at your stag party. Now you had to have a couple of prostitutes to make sure the guys had a really good time. So it it, it was getting to that point. Mm. Um, you know, and, you know, there was an attempt to kind of create a narrative online, both on their own websites and even, say, challenging some of the stories that the Sunday World were doing with their own, you know, when it became more digitized, you know, when there was stuff about blogs and, you know, when they were, yeah. were writing about me, they were writing about you, they were writing about, you know, we're making up stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and obviously I was a keen uh, user of the services according to some of the stuff that was written about me on, the, on these right. sites. But uh, it, it's, but I, I think, it, you know, the, the, like there was a kind of a, 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 de- a development over the last, whatever it is, 25, 30 years. Um, and, and you've seen that, like partly it's it's gone hand in hand with the di- digital revolution. Everybody has a smartphone since 2007. Before that, I mean, it used to be advertised in, I think it was in Dublin magazine, and then the legislation came in to outlaw advertising of prostitution services, and that ended that. But it, it almost came, you know, within a few short years, it switched to online. And if anything, then it just, it blossomed, it bloomed, or whatever way you want to put it, it just exploded. Um, and then on top of that, then you had a lot of people, young people with spare cash. So all of a sudden it became a little bit more acceptable, I think, among certain uh, certain types of people. You know, mm. I mean, all the surveys show um, this. This is now stuff that I, I would have spoken to researchers in the past some years ago. It, it might have changed since. But they kind of said the typical user of, of prostitutes in brothels would be a middle aged suburban dad who would visit once or twice a year, which was a real kind of. He often thought, no, it'd be kind of slightly younger, single guys with plenty of, plenty yeah. of money and, you know, living a fast kind of lifestyle, didn't have time to waste time chatting up women and just wanted to get on with things and move on to then whatever the rest of it was at night. But no, it turns out it was, it was you know, old, older guys, you mm-hmm. know, people with kids and, uh, you know, possibly for whatever reason were availing of these services. And, you know, one of the things I remember myself and Liam O'Connor were, we had this, we were tipped off about a story and it turned out to be bogus, but we ended up watching this particular um, apartment that was being used right in the middle of Waterford. 
Uh, and I, I went in, first of all, to make sure like we had the right address. So I, I made the phone call. Explain and, that, because that had to be done. And the reason that had to be done was to prove that this was actually going on in these premises, that it wasn't just a massage parlour as it was probably advertised. Yeah. And, and, and see, like I suppose in the early days, again, to be very coy in the advertising, it wouldn't necessarily, it'd be, they wouldn't be explicit about what services they were offering. So you have to go and ask. And then the legal advice at the time was then you'd also pay them. So you had to kind of hand over the money. You know, you'd have to ask for specific services. Walk us through it, Eamon. So you, you, you get the phone number and you ring the number. And usually somebody in broken English kind of tells you to, you know, some kind of nearby landmark, a shop or a coffee shop or a bank or something, and then call me when you when you get there. And then you make the second call and they say, okay, go through. You get another little set of directions and then it's the green door mm-hmm. on the right and it's the 11th bell down or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Like, and you ring the bell and somebody answers it, usually um, lightly dressed, I suppose, for lack of a better word. And you're taken, you're, you're taken to a bedroom um, basically then, you know, the kind of, it's a matter of like, well, you know, what do you want? Or you, you tell them, you say, well, what do you offer? And so in our case, we'd be taping this and it'd be pretty much along the lines. Are we going to, I want to have full sex mm-hmm. and you get that. And how much is it? And it's whatever, 50, 70, a hundred, something like that. And you'd, you'd hand over the money and then they come back in and this is where it gets tricky. You'd say, I've changed my mind. <laughs> And they're saying, are you sure? Because they, like in fairness, some some of these women would be a bit frightened then because yeah. they're worried about it because it's, you know, they're a little bit worried about what's going on. So I know it's a bit of a laugh, like, you know, talking about it here. But I'm sure for some of the women involved, there, there was a bit of bit of fear, like, you know, what exactly is going on here? Why is this, you know, this is unusual. You know, you know I, I don't know what they were thinking. You know, mm-hmm. was I going to steal from them? Yeah. Was I some complete weirdo that, you know, that pays up and then wants to leave? So the odd time you've had to make some, you know, stupid excuse like saying someone just called me on my phone. I'll come back later and whatever, and right. you get out. Um, I'm sure they're happy to see you go out rather than as well. You say, they've, they've, because actually, even the idea of that, you know, it does sound quite sinister. A thing to have to do for your to get your week's wage, like there's not very many people have to do that. As and, a Sunday World journalist, or as a <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Like that is quite a frightening thing to have to do, and I'm sure it was no matter what in the beginning. I myself have ended up sometimes having to go into properties and I do often kind of go, this is a mad thing to do, you know, to walk in, have a door closed. You don't know who's in there. You don't know who's going to attack you. You're obviously misrepresenting yourself. You're not claiming to be a journalist or whatever. Um, yeah, like you're you're lucky to get out of those situations realistically. And often we don't think of the other side of it. And of course, the girl is going to think, what the hell is this guy going to do? Because I mean, in the end of the day, the most normal thing is for the money to exchange and for that act to happen. And then they get rid of them or whatever and move on to the next. But yeah, it must have been. Yeah. And, and there's there's one piece of advice um, I think it was Liam gave me. He said, don't go into these places without the money in your pocket, because yeah. if the guy with the hatchet comes out of the hot press and you haven't got enough to pay for what you were supposed to be looking for, you could be in trouble. So, I mean, it, and, and so, I mean, that was always in the back of your head as well. I mm. mean, you go in, it's, you know, it's usually kind of a, a one or two bed apartment, but there's always a, there's always shut doors where you are. So you've no idea who's in the other room. Mm. And like we've seen over the years as well that, um, you know, there has been, you know, serious acts of violence, you know, have come to court where prostitutes have been attacked um, r- rather than the punters. It's, mm. you know, it's usually the customers, you know, who, who aren't customers, you know, possibly working for other criminal gangs trying to intimidate you know, competition off their patch. But like, it's always in the back of your head that 
I mightn't be the only one who's, you know, who's taping the encounter. Now, yeah. we're, we're doing it very much, um, you know, to have a record of what goes on so people can't accuse you afterwards of having done something you didn't do. And the uh, ultimate aim, obviously, is to prove that these services are for sale in this location, which you can then link usually. I mean, you started in the Sunday World in 2001, and that was a different era when it wasn't just that salacious sex story. This was crime, organised crime. So you're trying to link that property, the advertising for it, with some big gangster in the background and expose them. The point of it isn't to expose the poor girl. And in actual fact, I think you were awarded and rewarded for your work in the sensitivities you had towards the the girls working in the um, in the in, within the industry. Yeah, well, I, I always took the view, like having you know making the appointments. I always took the view that there's no way that these people managed to find themselves a flat in city centre Cork or mm. or in a nice place in Nice or wherever it was, um, you know, because they just didn't have enough English. I mean, and quite often the person you were speaking to on the phone wasn't the person who opened the door to you. So yeah. that suggested, again, that they were completely under someone else's control, that they were getting, you know, a phone call saying, there's a customer coming now in five minutes, be ready. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, and, and some of these people had n- no English whatsoever. So, I mean, there's no way that they arrived here under their own steam. Mm. And we, we do know now, I think the recent figures was it, I think 95 people contacted Ruhama last year that were victims of trafficking, something like that. Mm. Um, and like your experience going in and out of those places, not like you were doing it all the time, but going in and out of them was they were nearly all foreign girls. Were there? Did you speak to any Irish? No, I, in my experience has all been foreign girls. Yeah. And But I mean, there are Irish women advertised, but um, less and less, though Irish women. It'd be every so often, like, but it's it's a it's single percentage compared to the compared to the rest. Um, yeah. And and it was very clear, um, like there, there was one contact that I had who was able to do a sort of a mirror of the main website that that um, that you know that that was advertising. Now they've changed the way they set up the website, so we can't scrape the same information like mm. we used to. They obviously were aware that you know not only we were doing it, but obviously someone in a police force could do it as well. And you could clearly see patterns and you'd see the same the same prostitutes being moved from whatever it was, like somewhere like Boyle and Roscommon. And mm. the next minute, they're all the same group of women are in Middleton. And then two weeks later or three weeks later, they're in Galway and then they're in Derry. And you could actually say, right, that's one particular gang and there's an interlink with another group. So you could say, this gang has got, you know, at least 12 different prostitutes. They've got their main locations are whatever it is, Cavan or Middleton mm. or Dublin City. And then on top of that, you'd find other other groups. So, I mean, there was at least eight major gangs, like when we, the last time we were able to do this. Yeah. You could clearly see a pattern. That's just what we could see. And they're keeping the women on the move because they don't want them to settle in any community. They don't want them to make friends. They don't want them probably to build up any sort of relationship with any of the clients that they might talk about the, their circumstances too. Well, it, it definitely helps with, if you're going to be um, coercive in your control, even if it's soft coercion, keep keeping people on the move and mm. not allowing them to build roots or friends with other prostitutes. Um, but also, you know, there's an element of, oh, we got to keep the punters happy and have fresh girls for them, you know, every so often or whatever it is, every couple of weeks, even though, you know, the pattern suggests that, you know, the, the, the users of such services are, are once mm. or twice a year. So possibly they don't need to be moved as much as that. So it does point to it's likely that it's more to do with coercive control. And like over the years, like we've seen that, I mean, um, the the chap who was jailed in Wales, TJ Carroll. TJ Carroll, yeah. So I don't know if you remember the story, but we got hold of all the statements of something, something like 35 women that were um, 
trafficked uh, by his group. Now, some of them were, I think, uh, some of them were Uruguayan, South American, and they were kind of middle-aged ladies, and they were making a clear economic decision that they were going to they were going to leave their cleaning job in the south of Spain for you know a month or six weeks, and they were going to work as, as a prostitute in Ireland, and they were coming over. Um, and, you know, they were complaining about that there was they were frightened of the, the guy who used to call to, to um, collect the money. You know, they were forced to work in 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 apartments. One of them didn't have a front door that locked. Uh, you know, they couldn't they couldn't choose their clients. They couldn't say no to a client. So even though, you know, arguably these women had chosen to come in, mm-hmm. you know, to, to work and they were making an economic choice of their own free will. When they got to where they were in Ireland, it was far from it, you know, and yeah. there was even... Like he, he used to let it kind of be known. He had nothing to do with it, but one of the women who'd worked for him was murdered. She was beheaded. Uh, she's a Malawian woman who was killed by, her, I think it was her partner. Um, but he didn't, you know, he didn't disabuse anybody yeah, to yeah. say, no, that wasn't me. He let everyone like think that. it was him. So he, yeah. he enjoyed that. But there was one particular statement um, that I saw and it was kind of, it was, you know, the worst possible nightmares. Of, you know, as a 13-year-old girl, she was tricked into working in a bar in some part of Nigeria. And then, you know, a boyfriend, you know, eventually, you know, you know, was going to rescue her and bring her to Ireland for a new job. And she was going to meet his auntie over here. And I, th- I think at this stage, she was like 19 when she arrived in Ireland. Um, and she was told she owed 50,000 euro and she had to work it off. And she spent five months working in, in, in brothels here. I think then it was uh, an Eastern European colleague of hers said, look, you know, you can just walk out. And she, she plucked up the courage and she was interviewed by the guards and we got to see her statement, which I add were, were all part of a cab case against them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it wasn't like we, we got the statements illegally or anything. TJ Carroll was, um, during his court case, what year was he arrested, do you think? It was about 2008, was it? 2009? It was around that time. Yeah, yeah. He had moved this operation to Wales because there was an investigation here. He'd already been raided twice in Ireland. And and he was sort of operating it remotely then, wasn't he, from yeah. Wales with his, his then partner who was a, a South Clark, African, Shamelia yeah. Clark. And I went to see her in prison in Wales where she protested her innocence and basically sort of portrayed herself as a victim of his as well. Now, they were in a relationship and both of them were ultimately jailed. I think from memory during the court case in Wales, it was described that he was going to market in a place called Benin in Nigeria and he was basically buying some of the girls from that market. Um, It's a very sort of famous um, area of Nigeria where girls are brought from the country deep within rural Nigeria with no education and they're all believing in these kind of voodoo rituals and witchcraftry and they're sold basically at this market to traffickers and um, they uh, are set to work in the sex trade but they believe that if they don't work really hard then there's going to be you know curses put on their families and all this. It's a real um, manipulation of very vulnerable uneducated impoverished women and really that lies at the heart of of the sex for sale industry yeah no i, I had a i actually had a chat with um it was, it was, an, it was an american um academic who's done a lot of work on this and he, he he was explaining that you know the power of religion in west africa is huge and he said he, you know he went to he, he went to kind of christian meetings whatever and it would last for three or four or five hours and there'd be a heaving crowd and eventually everyone was in a you know a state of Mm-hmm. Of, of nirvana or whatever you know they're they're you know absolutely you know wild i suppose with with you know filled with the spirit of the holy ghost or whatever um and then the, these these um like there's there's you know a strong belief and and basically there were 
people before they were being sent to Ireland, they would go and undergo a ritual uh, with a, a priest, um, which might involve being cut with a chicken bone and some of the blood being burnt and all the you know yeah. all the stuff. And it was really held that that you know if anything, if you break this curse, your father will die, your mother will die, you will die. You know it'll bring a terrible thing to your you know your whole. Um, your whole family and you know and you won't just die peacefully you'll die screaming of some they you know, really horrible believe thing. this and it was it was it's very much believed yeah. and it, it got to the point where the the king had been in um he he actually now it's a kind of a titular title or whatever but he is considered the high priest and it was sometime whenever it was around 2012 or no it was, it was actually more recent than that he, he basically issued you know a statement to say that this curse has now been lifted it doesn't exist anymore because it was it was being used it was such an effective yeah. uh, um, tool of coercion tool to, yeah. to, to, to lure people into that sex trade and to make them work for free and, and, and to keep them to keep yeah. them in and you know and it might sound far-fetched but there, there was actually a case in in 2021 in Mullingar and those four women gave evidence against uh, against those three people charged and it was, it was two women and a man. Of course, the man was the guy who was acquitted, but the two women were jailed for, for their part in trafficking these women who were, again were promised jobs. They, were, they mm. went through this um, juju ritual um, and they genuinely believed it. And their, their victim impact statements were, were horrendous. You know, yeah. when they talked about it, you know, there was all the, the psychological damage, but even the, the, the physical damage they suffered from having sex so many times, um, you know, over, over, I mean, over, I think, five months, I think, or four months was the longest that any of the women managed to stay in it. Mm-hmm. But, like, they suffered, they suffered so many, day, like, they suffered so many internal physical injuries that have, you know, yeah. has left them permanently scarred and, yeah. you know, and, you know, doubtful whether they could have children again and all that sort of stuff. Um, and, like, and their, their stories were, were horrendous. And this was, this was the kind of a, you know, uh, you know, it looked very much like a mom and pop brothel operation, you know, out of out of Mullingar. But in in reality, you know, they knew people that they could contact to have women sent over. You know, so it was part of a you know a looser, yeah. But at the same time, a network. I mean, there, there was no signs of wealth. I, I spoke to the gentleman who was acquitted, and you know, he just went off on a, on a tangent about you know, voodoo isn't illegal, and it's you know, it's. You know, he he just he just you know he wasn't he he wouldn't answer a question. He wouldn't stop talking, but he wouldn't answer a question either. And you mentioned at the beginning there, like just as you were kind of starting in the Sunday World, and the Sunday World had been kind of covering just slightly before that, the big pimp of the day back at sort of the late nineties and and uh, into two thousands, and he has passed away since. Was a guy from County Clare called Tom McDonnell, a vicious pimp, but very well known for flashing his cash and I suppose the concentration of a lot of media at the time when it came to crime was on the drug dealers. That was a very active time, the 90s, as these kind of crime groupings, gangs were emerging and major players in the drug trade were emerging. But the vice trade was worth a lot of money too and McDonald was kind of at the very head, neck and tail of it, wasn't he? Yeah, I I mean, like he was... I presume, like, you know, there was others at it as well. Yes. I mean, I mean you had, um, had Tony Filoni, you know, was was a little bit, like, he kind of dabbled in it a bit, I think. Um, although he was more about blackmail. He used to inveigle young country girls in to uh, have sex and take photographs and then take their wages off them for, their, you know, until they eventually right. fled the country or whatever. Um, that, that was going back to the 60s. But uh, but Condi McDonald was definitely the first one that we knew of who was getting it up to a kind of commercial level. Um, 
I, th I think he was the guy who had the van and the mattress in the back and would would do a kind of a, a you know a kind of meals on wheels type service for the for the farmers out in the back and beyond. So yeah, he worked at it, like yeah. you know, and and of course it, it it was good money. And I mean, you know, and his guys then, like I mean, Martin the Beast Morgan would would have been one of his bagmen and Peter McCormack. Who then, you know, was was also inv involved with him, and they're the ones. And where who, did they come from? Or out of? Well, I, I know the beast. The beast Morgan is from a tie in Kildare. He's one of a family of. He's quite. He's quite a big family. Is he ex-military? Uh, no, no. He, I, I'm not sure. You know, he he was he was I, he might have been at some point. He might have had a, a short stint in the army, uh, but he he was working as a security man up in. I think it was the Westbury or some somewhere right. like that. Somewhere quite posh, you know, or maybe not directly for for the Westbury, but he yeah. was certainly working as a, as a security man and was known known to known to do that. And and he was very much one of the guys hired by Condi to to look after the money, collecting the cash. So himself and Peter McCormack, who was dubbed the Weasel at the time because of his, I suppose, his looks. Um, like, he was an ex-RUC <coughs> officer. He was an ex-RUC officer. So they obviously used the experience they got from working for Gandhi and, and they kind of moved it up to a whole new level um, and helped with, I suppose, the the the, the digital nature when, you know, mm -hmm. when, when uh, it just went online, it just made life so much easier for them. For them. That you know they you know they they could just I mean it really did explode then I mean it, it's and so they made, basically moved in on his patch McDonald definitely died now um, he died more than ten years ago I recall but he was probably coming to the end of his career in it as the king of the vice trade and they were kind of underlings who decided they wanted to take ownership they knew how to do it but funny. I mean, usually it was the lads that went into brothels. We were female journalists were largely spared that end of the the business. But actually, around the late nineties, at some point, um, and I think I was working for the Star at the time. I went out to try and get a job as a prostitute to see how much it would pay. Right, this was this undercover operation I was doing, and I answered a couple of these ads that were. Um, advertising sex for sale and sort of maybe must have phoned and said that I was actually looking for work. And I met up with uh, quite a few individuals who I hadn't a clue at the time how significant they were. But there was one um, I was told to call to this premises in around Leeson Street somewhere with a photographer with me and I went in and that was Peter McCormick was there. And I remember kind of peppering as regards what will I wear I didn't want to look as if I, I didn't want to look like a journalist, right? I wanted to look like an ordinary girl who wanted work as a prostitute. And I kind of thought I'd go for this sort of student sort of look, needed more money to get through college sort of thing. I wasn't going to go completely try and, you know, act out something that was too far away from my own background, I suppose. So I decided I'd say I was a student, that I was struggling to pay rent in Dublin, that I needed to make some money and I just wanted a quick in-out job in it, you know. And Peter McCormack brought me down to this room, like when I think of it now, or if any young journalist did it now, do kill it. them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so down I went to them and I remember I had a, a long sort of a skirt on and a denim jacket and um, he got me to walk up and down the room for him and I obviously could see, he could see obviously that I wasn't, didn't, I mean, I must have looked a bit nervous, but uh, I had a handbag thing and I remember he just did that. And he said, you're not a journalist by any chance, are you? And I went, oh, no, not at all. But I'd say he had me copped, which probably saved me, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. because he, as I subsequently 
found out, liked to test out everybody that came to work for him. And he was very quick with his fists and there was no question, but he would have, uh, you know, presumably decided he wanted to have sex and beat me up that day if he hadn't suspected I was a journalist. So in a way, I kind of, my nervousness probably saved me from it. But there was another woman then I met and there was a woman I met that was in, in around the in around the bleeding horse area. There was a flat and there was a woman I told me to come to that and I went along and she was an Irish woman and she was working this beat for a long time. There was about three of them. I never met the boss, but I met her and she was to show me the the ropes and she brought me into this room where there was this kind of like a bed, like almost like a sunbed thing. And that's where the you brought the man into this dingy flat and it brought him into this um, this place and he was to go up in the bed and whatever would happen. So I just chatted to her and she basically was a mother of a few kids and was working there. She told me that she was making a load of money. I mean, at the time, I think it was a thousand pounds a week, which probably was more like what you'd get a day for it. Like, but that seemed a lot or 2000 a week. I can't remember. But anyway, she was working. I think this girl had addiction issues herself. Um, but she was very nice to me, actually. And she actually said to me, don't do this. Get out of here and don't come back. Right. Really nice. She could obviously see I was, you know, young. I mean, again, my story was that I was trying to make some money while as a student. And she said, do anything you have to do, but don't come into this. There's actually two. Um, I know Rachel Morn has written a book. It's an mm. Irish woman who um, writes about her experiences as, as a prostitute and Mia de Fuita as well. And a kind of, you know, and, and they're kind of, they're, they're of the opinion that nobody makes a free choice to go into that trade. It is because of addiction. So yeah. I mean, even, you know, or you're being coerced, you know, and that it's not, it's, it's not, it's not a job, so to speak, that would be chosen by anyone who had any other choice to do anything else. Mm. Um, and, I th- and that was the, like, there was a, a... And yet you hear of these sort of very high-end prostitutes who claim that it's totally their choice. And I mean, there's a lot of pornography going on now that people are claiming they've ownership of it and they're they're making money and they're... Yeah, and I, I think people at the time fe- feel like... I'm sure people at the time think they're, they're in control. I mean, maybe they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, for every... I don't know David Beckham who makes it, you know, to the yeah. to, to the top of of football and you know has a successful showbiz or whatever it is or fashion career afterwards. I mean, how many people like you we've never heard of have you know flopped at both? Yeah, I mean, for every you know professional footballer, like there's a hundred kids who've had trials professional mm. clubs. So I mean, you know, it's it's the same thing. It, it, there may well be one or two. Um, who are who feel who, empowered who, and who who've are, yeah. somehow managed to successfully negotiate and worked as mm. to use the plight words like a courtesan to to rich people or whatever, but I mean ultimately, you know you're 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 selling you're selling your body you're selling a service, um, and it's very, something in a very dangerous sort of generally, environment, yeah. 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 And and even, and there was there wasn't an Oroctus committee in all party one. Um, I remember speaking to one or two people like some of some of the left wing TDs. Um, you know, who said, you know, they went into this with the idea, well, people should be free to do what they want with their own bodies. And, you know, that was kind of the classic left-wing view, you know, as opposed to kind of the more, you know, family values-based right-wing was saying, mm-hmm. oh, it's just immoral, it's, it's wrong. Um, but but I, I think the, you know, the kind of the trade unionists 
you know, on the committee agreed that, look, this is actually, this isn't, a, it isn't work. You can't define this as work. Mm. Um, it's, it, it's different. You know, it's not like, you know, giving someone a massage. It's not like painting a house. Like it's something quite different. Um, and, and that's why there was a unanimous support for kind of let's make it illegal to buy sex, which is the so-called Nordic model, uh, which was a, a version of it was adopted here in Ireland. Some of the old laws are still in the book. So we have a bit of a, a, a mishmash and every so often, you know, a judge will yeah. do something under the old uh, legislation, whatever, which kind of targets the women rather than than, you know, the punters or the pimps or whatever. Um, but I mean, the thing is, Ireland is still regarded as a tier two nation by by the US when it comes to dealing with trafficking. It's something that we haven't really got into mm. because we haven't we haven't tackled it enough times. I think there was a bit of disapp- disappointment the last time out because of the Mullingar case. They thought, well, this is going to get us up to tier one. Look, we're taking it on. But I think the fact that there's just so many. Um, Hard enough for policing, though, um, you know, I suppose maybe back in the day when you were starting in the Sunday world during those kind of the early noughties, the focus was on a lot of big pimps. Um, and one female one, Marie Bridgman. Do you remember this? Because this was only in 2004. A 38-year-old man accused of murdering his mother was found guilty but insane yesterday. And that was Marie Bridgman, who was murdered by her, her son, her 38-year-old oh son. God. Yeah, And I would have met her in around the late 90s and I met her on uh, Wexford Street in a coffee shop and she was advertising for prostitutes. She was a kind of a bit of a strange one because there's not that many women, sort of certainly Irish women that have been into the business. It is mainly men, although we've had a few. Um, But the minute I walked in to meet her, she just looked, took one look at me and said, you're a journalist. I'm not talking to you. I said, no, I'm not. And she said, I know you are. She just knew immediately. Straight away. Um, I didn't have such a recognisable face back then, but nonetheless, she was a clever woman. But yeah, but, but policing it, I suppose, you know, the traditional policing methods will be, the police obviously would probably do something, an undercover sting similar to what you guys have been doing in the Sunday world for a long time. But also there will be the, you know, the listening devices, the bugging and all that. And it's difficult for them because most of the industry now seems to be taken over by by foreign criminals. Without a doubt. And you've different dialects going on. And is our country big enough to have that kind of level of... I think so. I mean... I mean, there's not that many dialects. I mean, even if there's 10 mm. or 12, it shouldn't be that hard for, you know, if there was the political will or if there was... I know this is the difficulty with that. The only reason I raise it is because of the grow houses and a lot of the Chinese, Vietnamese, etc. who'd be involved in that. They have a difficulty with all the different dialects of the same kind of language. And But anyway, maybe it's not so... Yeah, no, we can see them. They've done it in other cases. I mean, there was the recent cab case with, a, you know, a Chinese money yeah. laundering operation that was going on. So they're, they're well able to do it when, when they want to. So yeah. I don't think that's an issue. I mean, there has been a lot of cooperation with the Romanian authorities. Uh, the likes of the, the Ganuso gang, you know, were yeah. operating in Ireland where the women had tattoos of barcodes on them to show their, their loyalty. Um, and then you had Ion, An- Ion Anton's crowd mm-hmm. as well. He, he was, we, we did stuff on various operations. And then I know Archie's primetime investigates, you know, absolutely nailed him, um, which was great work by them. They obviously had plenty of time to work on it. <laughs> but um, not that I'm jealous or anything. <laughs> but uh, in fairness to him, like, that, was, that was actually a brilliant expose. Um, but I mean, he's, they're still operating. I mean, the, that group, whether he's involved or not, is another thing. But mm. I mean, that network is still there. Um, and you have, 
you do have different ethnicities. You know, you're going to have women who are being exploited from poor countries. So you see, like in Ireland, there's a, a huge number of Brazilian, um, a huge number of Romanians. Yeah. Uh, and they'll often, you know, put themselves down as Portuguese or Italian in their in their profiles to try and disguise the fact that they're coming from, you know, in, impoverished places. So, you know, and these are, they might be, uh, you know, there might be a certain amount of them who've agreed to come to Ireland to work as prostitutes. And then the reality of, of what they're doing when they're here is completely different. They might be getting what they were paid for. They're certainly not getting to choose their customers. You know, they're under tight, tight control. And then there's others who are just, you know, totally lied to mm. and kind of told you have to work off to pay your debt. And what of... McCormack and Morgan. You're still writing about them. Well, I haven't written about Morgan in a while. The last time I met him, uh, he was over trying to get his money back that was taken off him when he was convicted for running uh, brothels here on the Keys, I think, in Dublin, and another one somewhere else. And uh, he, he was like, he was he was in the the brothel with I think twelve of his workers when the guards raided, and he was caught bang to rights with all the phones. But uh, there, and are they still running stuff? You think into Ireland? Uh, it, it's I don't know to be honest about mm. Martin Morgan. I doubt he's he's not involved. Like, you know he has to be. I mean, yeah. I, I remember I spoke to his sister one time. I interviewed his sister in London, and she she just tore strips off and called him a scumbag. Um, you know, and just was was a nasty piece of work. Uh, you know, the, the day I I tossed him outside the CCJ was a little bit opportunistic. I think it was there for something else, and went, oh god, there he is, because mm. I didn't. We weren't expecting to have turned up at one of these these financial hearings, essentially. Um, and there he was. But uh, no, he wasn't going to say anything. You know, I, I forget. He was something insulting. He said, why would I speak to you? He said, yeah. you know, you're lower than a snake. Oh. So it's nice to know that, you know, brothel keeper seems to think that working for the Sunday world is somehow, you know, a, a lower profession. Yeah. But anyway, you need to look down on someone. And then McCormick's company um, has gone from strength to strength. Like he, he just he presumably got out of the handling of the goods, so to speak, um, directly because he and, um, and set up his Escorts Ireland website. Uh, E-Designers then was the company behind that, which he ran with one of his, uh, a partner of his, I believe, at the time. And that's gone through a couple of different iterations now. Like at one point when we were looking at it, the, the servers were in Russia. Then I'm not sure where the servers are now, but like the company is based in Spain. It's a Spanish company. So he sets up in, comp in countries where it's not illegal to advertise prostitution. It would be illegal to do it here. Mm. But because it's doing it outside of the jurisdiction, it's, it's not an offense, even though you know, anybody who's, who's you know, running a brothel in Ireland is updating their their website profile from Ireland, which we did one time. Mm. We set up a fake profile just to show that there were no checks because they're saying, no, 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 everyone's over 18. So we just right. made a completely made up profile, um, used some bogus pictures, um, set up a phone, went live and got about 15 phone calls that night. And eventually they kind of copped on that something was ropey about this because obviously somebody was sent down to check us out and, you know, we didn't exist. Right. But but there was no no checks whatsoever. I mean, it was all, we just gave them all, you know, any kind of old rubbish. Like, you, you also know, just opened your skipped. own brothel, basically. It was oh, a virtual one, virtual I have to one. say, yeah. yes. With um, It's funny, though, um, I think we'd all say in the Sunday world, there are these people that you're sort of writing about and we'll probably be writing about towards the end of our career, maybe handing over the mantle if they outlive us. Um, but I think one of your most significant sort of tales was way back when you found yourself on the keys um you know with the first real investigation into daniel kinahan before he was yeah, no, named as daniel kinahan and, and yeah because I, I think i started in, in in may 2000 or 2001 in the sunday world and that august uh, uh christy kinahan senior 
got out of prison and I had a story on that, that he was out and believed to be up and running again, mm. back at work. And I think it was the first time that Christy Kinnahan Sr.'s picture w- was in the Sunday world at that point. Now, he had been written about, I think, in terms of uh, his forgeries and stuff, you know, he was caught with... Was that one of those old, uh, or the one we see, was it the, the kind of the picture from the lineup sort of one that we used to be able to get our hands on a little bit more than we do nowadays? I, I wouldn't like to say... Yeah. Uh, the, the origin of that particular right. pig. <laughs> but um, so anyway, as a result, like there was a, a contact I had at that time who then was saying, look, forget about Christy. You, you, you've got to talk about his son, Daniel. And I said, who's he? And there was nothing about him. And mm. um, they were saying that no, this kid is, you know, he's seen beyond his years. So I, I, we kind of didn't know much about him really. So I thought, well, look, we'll go down and take a picture anyway. So we'll, we'll have that in the bag and who knows when we'll get to use it. So we was right on that one. Um, it was years before we got to use, but we went down south and it was Liam O'Connor and the, the boys came out. They were up for attacking an off-duty guard at the Shelburne uh, dog track. Now, that it was a, not a prosecutor, it was dropped against Daniel. Uh, but the other guys, I think they were prosecuted. Martin Servi was one of them. Um, uh, there was a, a Cullen guy. You know, some of them, you know, their names cropped up again, but they never got to the heights, the dizzy heights at Daniel Kinnan. Yeah. He was the youngest of the group. All the guys were four and five years older, but they were clearly deferential towards him. So we started thinking, you know, there might be something to this, you know. Like here he is, you know, we know him now as a, a, a you know, a boxing whisperer, you know, yeah. a guy who's able to motivate, you know, boxers into to, to, into great feats of, of fighting or whatever. Um, and, and you could see that about him. Like he, he, on that day, and we did the story kind of brat pack, you know. And he was tough guy named, on town. he was He wasn't named, he was, he was pixelated out, yeah. you know. He had no convictions. He, he had absolutely no convictions. But if you remember, it, it wasn't, it, it was just only a year or two previous that Ray Salinger was shot dead yeah. um, in, 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 south, in the south inner city. In a pub. And that was very much being put on the Kinnens at the time. And that was their statements that, you know, he had crossed their path years before like eight yeah. or nine years this is the story um and he, he thought things were safe and things had cooled down and he he'd come back home from wherever and he was having a pint in this pub mm. and on uh, and he was shot dead and it was seen as totally over the top but absolutely ruthless and mm. very much a, a stamp and a mark that the calling card of what was to come and i mean gangland murder wasn't that frequent then i mean certainly when you look back there has been gangland murders since really the late 80s, since the beginning of the the sort of the the, the big drug gangs. But they were infrequent, gangland murders. I mean, somebody getting shot in the head in a pub in Dublin was a pretty big story. No, it, it was. It would have been at the time. I mean, yeah, there was very few, I suppose. It was like five or six, mm. maybe a year. And then now it's, I don't know, it's... It, it, I suppose it hits 20 every yeah. so often. It's it's kind of, <clears throat> it goes a little bit in cycles. You know, yes. I think when it gets in the way of business and some cooler heads eventually, mm. you know, and it's usually at the lower rung. Like mm. I think the, the higher up you go, the less inclined you are to get involved in, in, in getting people shot or having people shot. You're out, you throw money at the issue and you mean, why cause problems in that mm. sense? But, uh, you know, I mean, the thing with Kenahan is that, you know, you know, from the moment that we took the picture, I just knew we were going to be using it again. again and again and, and again. lo and behold, he turned up then with the, I think it was the, um, he was named in a court case in Holland as being the go-between between his father while he was in Portlaoise Prison and U- UP Altopost. So now all of a sudden we have this kid who at the time was 19 and mm. was dealing with international drug dealers. Now at, the, at that stage, they weren't where he, where he is now, mm-hmm. but it was still... Here you have a, a kid supposedly from, you know, south inner city from Oliver Bond 
who's dealing directly with people who, who can access kilos of cocaine mm. in, in Holland. John Cunningham was involved in that. He was probably bigger than Christy Kinnan Sr. at the time. Certainly, you know, the Penguin would have been a, a bigger player. Bomber Kavanaugh would have been a bigger player at that mm. stage. But then in the middle of this, you have this little, you know, not a little kid, but you have this young kid, mm. now, now 21, Coming 22, of age, yeah. who is who's learning the international trade. Yeah. Like, you know, and that's Straight into it, like he really went up the rung. And of course he was, there was a whisper of him during a uh, race-fixing trial in the UK in 2005, uh, where he was described as being a fairly scary individual who was described as being small, but when he spoke, you'd know you'd been spoken to. Um, and of course, by 2010, uh, you were over in Spain because he had yeah. been arrested and properly brought before the courts for the first time, being investigated for Operation Shovel, which was the offensive, the Europol offensive against the Kinahan organization. Yeah, and and John Cunningham as well was yeah. you know, arrested as part of that. So you know, even though I suppose he was one of the people that you know was handed over to us to some extent, mm, like and mm. presumably he's still going. Whereas Daniel was the new kid on the block. You know, Christy Kinnan was the up and coming. Christy Kinnan Senior was the up and coming at that stage. So, you know, like, what, we're nine years in and we're still writing about him. So that was 22 years ago, was it? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, when we did the I first know. one about Daniel yeah. and Christy Kinnan. And it just shows, I mean, in a way that was kind of the calling card of the Sunday world as a, a media organization, as, you know, what it was in, I mean, before I started working with Sunday world, I used to look on fascinated. How are these stories? How did they get these stories? How did they get these pictures and everything? But actually, when you start working, in the in the the newspaper, you realise that they're ahead of the game because they are ahead of the game. The Sunday World was always ahead of the game when it came in to crime, because there was an investment put in to. If a reporter came in and said, "I'm hearing these stories about this young guy down in Clondalkin," he's you know my contacts are telling me he's going to be up and coming. An investment would be put in to putting a little surveillance operation on that guy to trying to find out more, to trying to get a photograph, to put it into the archive to be ready when something did come. And I mean, for me, that very much is, was was why the Sunday world was as successful as it has been over the years in yeah, crime reporting. And, and, and even sometimes, you know, you, you, you know of somebody, but we, we can't write about them at this stage, but we know they're going to be in court for driving too fast in the motorway. <clears throat> but we'll go and take their pick and yes. we'll have it in the bag and ready to use for, you know, when they, you know, make the big mistake or yeah, you know, hit yeah. the headlines. And I mean, back in, you know, back in, I suppose, both when you started and I started, there was a lot more resources. Then, you know, it was a far bigger team and we were far more able to do that more frequently. But I suppose we we just move with the times and um, things are changing in the media business, in society and everything. We were talking about that before we come on about, I suppose, how the Sunday world has evolved and the way it approaches stories as well over the years since you've been here. Um, it's changed its attitude to certain stories and you know there was that whole when 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 stuff started social media started up in a big way like a lot of the stories you would have done would have been about the bare knuckle boxing that secretive world that existed and you made your contacts and sometimes you were invited along to things and sometimes you weren't and but that all changed because that all went up on social yeah. media and <clears throat> Well, I remember like, you know, driving to Ennis to, to, to buy a VHS video copy of a fight. I and mean, that was only 2004, 2005. Whereas now it's, it's going to be up online. It's, it's, in fact, they, some, some of them are, are streamed live on Facebook. So you can actually watch it. You don't have to go anywhere. 
you know, I mean, so it's just completely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in one sense, it's made our life easier. It's made it a little bit harder because, you know, the story's out there. Mm-hmm. But it, it's made us work a little bit, uh, I suppose, as we're a bit more cuter about the way we're doing it. That, you know, <clears throat> people will see a fight, but they don't have the context. Because you know, yeah. nothing's going to be explained. There's, there isn't going to be any subtitles or explanation at the end of it to, to say who's fighting. So we still have the context to be able mm-hmm. to find out. What was behind all this? So you have the background and the kind of the the reason why these silky races are happening, who's behind them, what's the tradition, how long they've been going on for and what's the real, you know, gain from them. I mean, I think the most fascinating story that you've done and followed all the way along has to be that dead zoo gang. I mean, that is an extraordinary story. And there's a, there will be some um, a documentary coming in the near future on Sky in relation to this grouping. But just tell me a little bit about that and how you... The Dead Zoo Gang, yeah, the yeah. story that keeps on giving. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I think it was December 2010 or 2011, something something like that. And uh, I, I got a call from, you know, one of my contacts who was saying, look, the, the traders in Rakhil are going mad for rhino horns. And I I couldn't, I didn't absorb the story. I couldn't quite process what they were talking about, saying like, I mean, they're antiques. And saying, yeah, like they're buying them, you know, they're buying them in, you know, auction houses. You know, they're kind of a curio that if somebody's, setting up a nightclub or a dodgy looking hotel or something mm-hmm. and want these antique, you know, headmans that, you know, they, they swap hands for a couple of hundred quid. But all, all of a sudden there was thousands being, being um, spent on these. And it, I think some of the auctions where it turned up first was in Australia. And some of these mysterious phone bidders were putting in huge money and competing against each other. And <clears throat> we since learned that these are actually some of the, the Rakhil traders. Um, and they had a contact who would have worked between Australia and, and China and Vietnam, uh, sourcing basically rhino horn for the illicit medicine markets you know even though it's carotene it's the same thing as your hair or your fingernails mm. it was often seen as a prized um thing to have like a parma ham up on top of your you know your table and you scrape off a bit and sprinkle it into your guest champagne and it helps mm-hmm. them whatever with ailments they have or you know have better sex or whatever you know it's it's a, it's a, it's a, it's supposed to give you um but the the, the 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 figures involved per kilo are anywhere between twenty thousand and sixty thousand dollars. So if you consider some of these are like four kilos, so a single rhino horn was all of a sudden worth an awful lot of money. It's about the price of a kilo of coke, is it? Uh, well, it's, it depends where you're buying it, Nicola. But it, I mean, it's it's certainly yeah. I mean, it's 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 up there. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, whatever. <laughs> Move on from that. But yeah, it's, it's certainly kind of the retail end of it, all right. But I'm sure they weren't getting the full whack. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. similarly, like if you're buying your cocaine in Peru, it's going to be a bit more expensive compared or it's be a lot cheaper than, than here. But uh, so the guy, the guys were, they, they were into it, um, onto it pretty quick. And, and they started looking for any antique rhino horns they could find. Um, and I, I remember like before we could finally do a story on it, like we, there was um, a circle I went out from Europol to, to mu- museum curators to say, look, be aware, there's a group that are out there stealing these. And they were advising people like the the Natural History Museum in, in Dublin to take their rhino horns off off display that, you know, there might be a danger to, to members of the public if somebody mm. comes in and tries to steal it or grabs it or whatever. And of course, that's where the name the Dead Zoo Gang comes from. It's you know the old Dublin and witch. These museums probably wouldn't have mad security, would they? No, there'd be very little. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, I mean, the stuff is all. Oh, it's it it's, it's, might, it's a curiosity yeah. rather than anything. There's no great. I mean, it was a Victorian idea of like let's let people look at these exotic animals, and some of them were pretty crudely stuffed, mm. kind of you know African or wherever you know elephants and sea lions and all sorts of things. Oh, you better, well. I, do, I think it's fascinating, the old dead zoo. I reckon I recommend it to all tourists like to visit and they kind of usually come out like, oh my God, what was that? You know, but then they've a whole bunch of selfies with a, you know, a zebra that was shot 150 yeah. years ago. Ugh. But um, 
But the guys, I mean, there was something, there was a minimum of 200 robberies um, across, you know, um, pokey little provincial museums all over Europe. And I think the first police force or whatever to get involved was the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. And they got two of the raccoonies in Colorado and Denver. And they were, they did them under CITES, C-I-T-E-S, whatever is thing is the international agreement on the trafficking of endangered species, bodily parts. So it, it was just such a clever kind of niche that they got into. Um, and it, it went on, for, I suppose, at the peak was about, I think it was 2012, when you had all these and uh, all these robberies going on. Um, and some it of it showed how globe trotting they were as well. Didn't yeah, it? And I mean, kind of, and and also while in one sense they were very sophisticated and very clever, uh, like Operation Griffin, which was a, a, um, a police operation in the UK against them. After they were there was something like fifty three million worth of artifacts like uh, stolen jade. They'd moved on at this stage now to actually getting more valuable pieces, and that prompted. I think there was one particular cop kind of managed to put two and two together and realize it's the same group. And there was some of the evidence in that, like, showed you how hapless and clumsy they were. Like, there was, there was guys, they were, they were, you know, they were buying burner phones to, to tell their guys, okay, this is where you got to steal it and all the rest. And then ringing their mammy on the same phone because they'd forgotten their own phone. And they were, they were like, you know, and it was that level of incompetence. And they were able to piece together the movements and, you know, and then the guys would hide the stuff and they'd all turn up the next day and they couldn't find it. I mean, I think when the, the first robbers they did, they couldn't find what they'd stolen um, the next day, whatever, whatever happened to the rhino horns. But the, they were, they, there was, um, but like, it's still going on. I mean, even last year, I thought it was all finished. And, you know, it turns out there was another four guys caught in, in France. There, were, there were, it was a, a kind of a routine traffic stop and they were found with all this stuff and they were put under, uh, um, I think, kind of some kind of surveillance. And they found um, a Chinese Vietnamese um, a group of business people that were using these Irish guys then to source more rhino horns. So, and they were up in Wren, I think, just last year or year before, and they were they were sentenced in in absence to four years. On, and they were, I think, the phrase used by the the prosecutor there is they were hunters without guns. Right. So I mean, yeah, it, it's just it's mm. just the, the weirdest one, and it's still going on, like you know. And the, obviously, following some of these groupings has taken you around the world, so to speak. Um, where have you been for the Sunday World? Yeah, I, well, I suppose one of them was uh, I was out in Texas one time with the the Greenhorn Carls. They made they were all Irish uh, descendants, and one of the guys, Richard Daly, agreed. You know, he was going to give me an interview, so we flew out. Um, and they're they're very much you know uh, they're they're basically Irish travellers. Um, but we'd come across them like the Johnny Toogood and his wife Madeline had been caught in a fairly high profile shoplifting incident in which she was seen thumping one of her kids. This and this is in South Bend, Indiana. Um, so we went out and just to see, like, you know, what was going on. And we spoke to some of the locals and, you know, they were typically Texan, the local police, fairly forthright. They were quite open with us. Um, we didn't get a, 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 a warm welcome. I think they obviously rang some of the relatives back home after we were in the air and they clammed up pretty quick. Oh, no, so you went but all the way over for an interview. We went all, all, the way to, all the way to Texas and Shh. the first day it was 29 degrees and the day after for the rest of the week it was minus three. It got hit by okay. like a, a once in a 10-year Arctic storm. <laughs> so it was actually difficult to even move around. But no, we, we did get a story. Um, yeah. Like he, 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 this guy, um, Daly, had committed his own kind of life story to a cassette tape which uh, was passed on to me. Mm. And so we got a little bit of insight into how they work and even some of the connections with, with people back home. Um, and, and then, and even then, you know, that there's still, you know, there's still an active, you know, Irish people in, you know, doing the bogus tarmacking 
Mm. Um, and they're still working in upstate New York and they're, they're flying in and out of from, from Ireland, you know, these days. I mean, we had a group arrested recently on a, on a fishing, like on, when I say a fishing boat, like on a, on a, on one of these kind of, uh, leisure cruisers, you know, who they'd obviously left from Florida and picked up these, the four or eight, I think Irish people, or, or no, I think it was kind of two, two Irish nationals and six British passport, ho- passport holders are obviously had flown into Cuba and are trying to get back into states on the QT. Right. Uh, we know that, you know, there's, there's other Irish have done something similar coming through the, the, the channels in, in, um, in Canada as well. But the tarmac has brought me as well. I remember one time we, we ended up in Bergamo in Italy, which is a beautiful, you know, uh, just at the, the start of the Italian Alps, mm. you know, you kind of get into that lovely hilly country. That was and, the place that was first hit with COVID, wasn't it? Not far, yeah. It would have been that area. Um, now, obviously, we were there a good bit before that. Yeah. And uh, so we had somebody on the inside um, who was kind of telling us where they had been. So we were trying to get pictures of them at work. Now, we didn't find them, but we spoke to a number of the people who'd been suckered. And when we kind of explaining through an interpreter, now, we found this interpreter, so, but I'm not sure how good his Italian was because there was a lot of confused faces and an <laughs> utter shock when they realized who we were, what we were doing, and that they had been conned. And we spoke to one guy who's a fireman, and himself and his neighbor had given these guys 15,000 euro. And even I could see it was a complete botch job. Like, and they were kind of looking and going, yeah. And, you know, you're just moving your foot on it, and it's coming up oh, off the, the surface, like total ripoff. So much money to lose. And then yeah. they'd done, you know, they'd done a, um, I think, a, w- w- not this particular group at the time, but they'd also famously, in, in Italy, made the headlines there that they had... Um, they they tried to do a car park for uh, a group of nuns at their convent in Monza in Italy, you know, near the, the F1 track, which that's what the, the motoring fans would know about. And uh, in fairness to the sisters, they they smelled a rat. And mm. so a local copper dressed up as a priest and waited for the boys to come back. And there was some arrests anyway, but <laughs> that's it was never a, a court story. case. <laughs> but, uh, but funnily enough then, like, you know, we were kind of, I suppose, doing the usual thing. Trying to, we're trying not to advertise our presence in Italy at, the, at you know, when, what we were doing because we had good in, inside information. But after we left, we made, it, it ended up on the regional newspapers about, you know, the Irish scammers and all the coverage that we had done and, Stuff like that, so that that was un, unusual. But I think that's um, the strangest corners of places that you wouldn't expect to be yeah, following I've had, criminals. I've had, I've had calls from people in, like, there was one morning I had a call from someone in the US about them, and I had, on the same day I had a call from somebody in Germany about mm. it. I've had Israeli television turn up, you know, doing pieces about them. You know, we, we've seen the tarmacers in South Africa. We've seen them in Colombia. They're actually probably one of our, um, you know, most successful exports then. Well, they're they're good at it. I mean, yeah. you know, they've turned up in Australia. And, you know, they've we re- punch they very much above our kind of small little country, don't we? Sometimes, with when it comes to the the criminal underworld, and uh, you know, yeah, the, yeah, I suppose it's the flip side of our soft power. Like we have all these great artists, you know, and these fantastic writers and singers, and a couple of you know determined sports people, and we like putting that forward. And you know, we're good at diplomacy or. Our blue-hatted, you know, UN yeah. soldiers are, you know, well known for diffusing situations. So, I mean, if you apply those same attributes to a more criminal kind of uh, activity, it's going to work for you as well. We're doing well at it. So, um, I suppose to finish, are you uh, ever regretful that you uh, your career took you into the Sunday world as opposed to the Guardian? 
Look, I mean, the advice is, you know, the, yeah. the young people is, is, you know, find find something you love doing and you won't feel like you're working. And that's that's what it is. I mean, sometimes sometimes it's extremely frustrating when you know there's a story and you just can't get it. You just mm. can't get at it. Or <clears throat> And then sometimes on a, on a daily level, even, you know, you go to a, a court hearing and it doesn't happen. You're going, oh, hell, I have to try it back here again now or or whatever. Or worse, somebody from a daily newspaper turns up. Oh, yes. How annoying <laughs> is that? Yeah. But look, I mean, yeah, you, you mean, but there's all these things. I mean, there is there is these kind of frustrations and 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 we see it as well like there's a little i mean i don't get it really but i mean there is a little bit of that kind of trolling after a story sometimes that you get, there's a certain amount of it on social media i mean i'm minuscule compared to what uh, some people get but there there is you know you get people who try to bully you like you know whether it's mm. solicitors letters or you know it's a bit of a pushback you know whether it's complaints to you know um, the press council or to whatever authority that they think, you know, they can make a complaint to. And of course, then you get these official letters and it's very much to kind of make you, make you think twice before you write about them again. You know, it's that kind of. That's always there. Yeah, yeah that's always there. Yeah. But like, I mean, you know, you, but you, you know, as, as well as I do, I mean, we prepare so well. Mm. I mean, people might look at these stories and think, God, they wrote that in five minutes, but it's, it's taken a long time and every line has been carefully read and also, everything can be backed up. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's an education that you're gaining all the time and your experience and your, you know what I mean, how long you've been at it. And the likes have been able to look at a photograph of Martin Morgan because you've been face to face with him and you can say, that's him or that isn't, you know what I mean? So that's really. Um, and what about the changing face of the Sunday world as it goes forward to its next 50 years? Well, the good thing is uh, the Sunday world is going to be around. I mean, it's it's such a, a brand in Ireland. Um, you know, again, it's involved like from its, you know, early days and, you know, the 1970s, you know, when we all spent and had a drink with Sean Boyne, who used to be the news editor mm. and, you know, regales us with great tales of the madness, you know, that the Ireland of the late 70s and early 80s was and all the crazy stuff that went on in, in terms of how all companies were run at that stage. Like, you know, yeah. and it's a real eye opener. Um, but like, you know, everything, everything changes, like, and everything moves along. And I mean, we're clearly going digital. I mean, the idea of doing podcasts is, I suppose we're even a little bit late to the game to some mm-hmm. extent. I mean, mm-hmm. there, there's some podcasts going 20 years now. Um, but like, but you can see like the so-called legacy media now is starting to get to grips with it. And some of the big disruptors, like, I don't know, BuzzFeed and Vice, you know, who are kind of seeing these with the new, they were going to, they were billion dollar, you know, media entities at one point, and now they're, they're gone or they're struggling. Mm. So the, the fact that we have, you know, that kind of understanding of our market. So the platform, I guess, is different. You know, there's more people that are going to be reading the Sunday World off their apps. They're going to be reading it, you know, they're going to be reading it on their iPhone. That's, yeah. we know that's where they're reading it. 100%, um, yeah. And, and, you know. It still needs journalism. Still needs a content, or as yes. you know, the the, the corporate uh, accountants used to say, premium content. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. that people w- will want, and you know, I, I think we do that. Mm. You know, I think we we get we get original stories. I mean, the fact that so much stuff that the Sunday World over the years that we've written about has turned up on TV in various documentaries and even in 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 kind of uh, dramas shows you that yeah. you know we like the Sunday World, like everyone in it, kind of understands where the market is like in that sense we, we know what people are interested in but also you know we're not doing it for the sake of it I think we, we kind of know we're conscious of the victims in you know when we're writing about stuff and we're conscious of making sure as much as we can that we punch up and not down mm. and I think I think people respect that we'll continue to punch up Eamon Dillon thank you very much thank you Nicola
Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.